Thank you, Mr. Ames. Welcome to all of you here. It's nice to see many here on this uh, beautiful day, and it is an unusually beautiful January. World events are really speeding up, as you know, and things are getting very dangerous, and I'm sure you're all aware of that. Even President Bush said we're entering a very violent and bloody, he used the term bloody, time, and a lot of bloodshed is going to occur over the next few months, and we understand that. And God is going to use that perhaps to shake people. It's going to cause the uh, Islamists around the world to stir themselves more and perhaps to attack us more than they have been around the world and perhaps even right here. So we do need to ask God to guide it the right way to protect His people and yet in the right way to shake our nation and even shake our church and God's people everywhere to draw more of us close together and close to Him. And I'm sure He can do that if we do our part. I want to give a sermon this afternoon on something I've been thinking about for the last two or three years, and I've been studying it just a little bit off and on, but I've studied it more recently this week, and it's a topic that we've never just nailed down. It's a very important topic, a very interesting topic. It's about the key of David. The key of David. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. You know that Revelation chapters 2 and 3 describe the church eras. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it describes the church of Sardis, the era just before Mr. Armstrong raised up what we feel was the Philadelphia era. And he describes how that era was dead. And I was there. I actually went up to preach in Sardis churches and then visited them when I was still a student at Ambassador College. In fact, Mr. Armstrong encouraged some of the students and, and, uh, and us to go up there and do that because we didn't have churches at that time all over Oregon. And he says, fellas, you go ahead and visit with them or attend their service. He says, they're another branch of God's church. And he used that term branch a number of times, as Mr. Raymond McNair acknowledged, that I think Mr. Aparty remember him using the term branch. I certainly do. And uh, But he said, they won't hurt you, but you might worry them. And he kind of chuckled, and, and I've explained that to you. When we walked in, you know, three young men with our suits on, it kind of worried them. They thought, Armstrong's men are here to take over. Well, I was a 19-year-old kid. I wasn't going to take over anything. <laughs> but anyway, they were nice people, but country people, and all they could talk about was their crops and the local scene. They had no vision of a worldwide work or prophecy or anything like that. And these scriptures here perfectly describe them. He says, you have a name that you live, but you are dead. He says in chapter 7, chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. That's the next era of the church to come, and that's the era that we all feel that Mr. Armstrong raised up. God used him to raise up that era of the church beginning in January 1934. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. It doesn't say necessarily that we have the key of David, and yet you think carefully, and it certainly implies that key was to be with the church under Mr. Armstrong's guidance, under Christ's guidance, I mean. He who has the key of David, he who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now, many, many times, brethren, and certainly it is true here, the word name has the definite indication of authority. You have not denied my authority, the authority of Christ. 
the authority of his government, the authority of his power, and that is certainly what it's talking about here in context. He said that he would set a door before the Philadelphia era. If you turn back to Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, if you would, just briefly, you'll see, of course, the use of the term door there, Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. He says, Furthermore, the Apostle Paul, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest. He had to keep going to be able to go through that door. An opportunity, of course, to preach the truth. And then you read Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. There are several others. I just wrote down a couple of them here. And you can check the word door in uh, a concordance and see it used a number of times in this connection. Chapter 4, verse 3. God says here, Paul says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us that God would open to us a door. You see, an opportunity to preach the truth, a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. So a door is an opening, an opportunity to go through that door, to go through that opening, to use that vehicle to preach the truth. The big door Mr. Armstrong used at the very, very beginning were personal campaigns, revivals. He didn't call them revival, but just personal campaigns. He would rent little schoolhouses and various buildings, and he would pass out handbills himself, walking over the Oregon hills, sometimes with his feet without proper soles, and he had to put cardboard in his shoes so his feet wouldn't get too wet because he was so poor at that time. And he would have these campaigns, which he describes in his autobiography. He used that door. Then the door of radio opened up, as you read in his autobiography. And then he began on one station in late 1933 in Eugene, Oregon. And that door then began to open more widely. And the work began officially then at the commercial use of radio in January uh, 1934. And that's often the day he used to officially begin the big work that became the Worldwide Church of God. Back then it was the Radio Church of God. And Beverly, his daughter, and I've heard some of these old programs, and perhaps you did too, some of you. I was listening in 1944, and Beverly would be singing, and another person and a pianist, or they'd have a little trio singing and on the program, and they had a kind of a Protestant look, a sound to it. He didn't know, and uh, followed that way until he gradually realized that wasn't the thing to do. But he was preaching the truth on that original door. Then later, of course, television opened up. Well, later, I should say, the printing press opened up very quickly. The very next month, he started the plain truth as kind of a, an old uh, type of a primitive form of a mimeograph type of thing. It wasn't a real a print or printer, but he put out a plain truth magazine to just a few hundred subscribers. And then later, it became far more professional. And that started in February 1934. And he had the door of publishing. And then years later, in the 50s, we tried to go on, and Dick Armstrong were I together there with Mr. Armstrong in the summer of 1955 when he first tried out television. And it was hard for him. It just didn't, he didn't like it at all. He was having to do, uh, go into professional studios when they were standing around these Hollywood types. They were cussing and smoking and were at the edge of the set. He got all nervous and kind of sounded angry at the camera. <laughs> and uh, so it didn't work too well. So he went off that door, but later he came back on. 
and the work began to grow and grow and grow with television and radio and the printing press and some personal campaigns, of course, as well, continued uh, through those years, going through the doors that Christ opened. And Christ did open those doors in a remarkable way, though, to Mr. Armstrong. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So anyway, he tells this about the Philadelphia era. Doors. Opportunities to go through the truth are mentioned here. The indication is this era, very clearly it doesn't mention that about any other era. That's the, that's the key, in a sense. It was, it was to be an era that went through big doors to preach the truth more than any other. That mentioned that in the Laodicean era. And then, of course, the other fact was that they had the key of David. The key of David. And we want to explore the key of David today. So the Philadelphia church, and we feel we are the leftover Philadelphians, I'll explain again, in the Laodicean era. We do not expect to be the majority of God's people. We could be the biggest single church later on. I'm not saying we will, we, I don't think, but that's not the point. We're not just after numbers, but after quality. But the church as a whole, there would be more people. If it is the Laodicean era, most people would be Laodicean, if you follow what I mean. And we know he condemns them for being lukewarm, having a kind of a self-pride and social life and all this, but lukewarm. And that's the main condition he mentions about them. But he describes the Philadelphians as wanting to go through the door. And as you know, we now, even though we're smaller than a number of other groups, or at least one other group, are going through more doors than any other group on the earth and getting more responses. There's no question about that. We really are. Talk to Mr. Pyle if you want to know the statistics, but we are. And we're doing more with less money even than Worldwide was. We have a wonderful team. For instance, in editorial, we have full-time Mrs. Donna Prejean in the art and graphics area, and we have Mr. Bill Bulmer as the executive editor helping Mr. Ames full-time and getting out publication after publication after publication with the ability he has. And then we have Mr. Ames half-time. And that's about it. <laughs> and if you were to walk around, again, Mr. Pardin would remember, Mr. and Mrs. Pyle, the editorial area where I worked for a while, and worldwide, I don't remember the numbers, but it was about 25 to 45 people there, 25 or 30, maybe at times more. They had all these people part of editorial. Whole gob of them. We have two and a half. And think of what we're doing. No, we're not putting out the dozens of booklets that they did, but we are putting out over two dozen and we are putting out a lot of material with about one-tenth the number of people that Worldwide had. And, of course, we have Dr. Winnell writing, and I write, and others. And back then, of course, we had Mr. Armstrong, and I would write, and Herman Hay and others. But, uh, you know, beside the regular full-time, well, Herman Hay was full-time, but a number of us who were not full-time were writing for the magazines back then, even beside that 25 or 35 people in editorial. But none of us are full-time remotely, except those two and a half people. I kind of characterize it that way because Mr. Ames can't spend his whole time on editorial and do his telecasts and be the first vice president of the work and all the other things he does. And Dr. Winnale is the second vice president of the work. 
and uh, and he cannot do all the directing of the ministry all over the world and spend full time in editorial. So uh, we know that they're giving of their time, and many of us are to get it done. So the idea of the Key of David, brethren, originally in the old British Israel organization, and I used to read their stuff when I first came to Ambassador College, they thought that the Key of David was totally and altogether about the matter of where the tribes of Israel went, the identity of Israel and the throne of David. And that's what they thought it was about, and that's what they used to write. In fact, I wish I could I could have looked that up maybe if I'd had enough time and found some of their old material stating that, but that's what they thought. And Mr. Armstrong picked that up from them, and that's what he thought it was primarily. However, later in his life, I sincerely say this at least once or twice, I think it was twice some of us were talking, well, doesn't this have also to do with government? And he acknowledged, yes, I think there probably is a government, and we just don't fully understand that part yet. So we're going beyond that, and you say, well, you're saying something that Mr. Armstrong didn't say exactly that way. Well, if Mr. Armstrong were here, in most cases, unless I said something offensive or challenging, I think he'd want to jump up and say, well, of course, you don't have to say everything exactly the way. I told you to grow in grace and in knowledge. And that's what he always told us to do. You see, some of these groups that split off, frankly, are in danger of idolatry little side issue, but I really mean that, brethren. I love them, but they're in danger of idolatry. They are trying to idolize a man and say that every single he word he said and the way he said it at a particular point in time is like the Ten Commandments brought down from God by Moses. Mr. Armstrong never said that about his writings. He said, my writings have been inspired by God in a general way, just like our sermons, but I make mistakes, and I know that, brethren, myself very well. I'm not bragging. I didn't, wasn't the main one, Herman Hay, but Herman Hay and I were the main editors for the first 20 years, I guess, of the college, and we constantly helped him revise the old, uh, you know, uh, booklet, United States and Britain and Prophecy. He had all kinds of references to things that weren't exactly that way. He'd copied from this British Israel material and many, many other things. We would help him and he'd be glad to be helped. He would listen to advice, listen to counsel and so on and uh, so on. Near the end of his life, he was surrounded by what some said were the airplane crew. I won't give their names, but he was influenced by them and did not have men like Herman Hay and in the earlier days, Raymond McNair and uh, other men like Mr. Ames and Mr. Apartian and so forth who were faithful men to help him. He didn't have that kind of men to help him and sometimes made some mistakes he might not have made otherwise. But he did always want us to grow. He didn't want us to stay stagnant. Some people say, and I'm saying this not just for your church here but around the world, some of you brethren out there, you say you want us to grow But if we ever add anything or one word to what Mr. Armstrong said, then other people saying, you're not parroting every single word of Mr. Armstrong exactly the way he said it. You can't have it both ways. (laughs) Do you follow me? We do have to grow in grace and in knowledge. And I say sincerely before God, to the best of my memory, Mr. Armstrong did say this passage about the key of David probably did include things about government, but we never followed up and pursued it. So it does include, as an important part, I think, the whole concept of the throne of David that had to do with the government and that throne coming down to our time through the British Empire. But perhaps the biggest thing 
that we need to think about. And the title of my sermon is, How Does the Key of David Apply to Us? How Does the Key of David Apply to Us? And we need to understand the other part of it. In fact, both apply, as I will explain, and go more thoroughly into that part, which was never fully developed during Mr. Armstrong's time, but does not contradict the first part at all. It's just an additional way that I think you could, we can understand it and prove it. So Mr. Armstrong at first followed what he had read in the British Israel material. I know that. I was there. He had their magazines. We talked about it. He referred to them and so on. Now, let's notice what the Bible says about the key of David and so on, which is very important, and about keys in general. Turn with me now, brethren, if you would. Turn with me to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Chapter 1 this time. And let's begin here in uh, verse 4. John to the seven churches, grace and peace from him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, uh, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, so uh, uh, and has made us kings and priests to our Father. So this is a very important concept about about this whole matter here when you understand it. Christ is involved in that. And uh, we, we certainly want to think about that. He has made us kings and priests. Then you turn to chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. And here you find the Bible usage of keys. Then the fifth angel... Oh, I'm sorry. I turned to chapter 1. I meant to say verse 18, and I didn't get there. Let me go back. Chapter Revelation 1, verse 18, I am he who lives, Jesus continued here, and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever, amen, and I have the keys of hell, or of Hades, and of death. So here the word keys are used in connection with, uh, you know, the grave and, and death and so forth. So that is Christ has those keys. In chapter 9 now, in verse 1, it describes the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him, this uh, stars are identified, as you know, in Revelation 1, as angels, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So here is another use of the word key in the Bible. So it's not like it's just uh, identity of something. It has to do with opening and, and, and shutting and authority to do something, to put people into hell or to give them eternal life or that kind of thing. And then you read also, uh, if you would, uh, this other scripture back in chapter 20. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key. Here's another key mentioned in the very book of the Bible which, of course, talks about the key of David in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. He had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So he had the authority to bind Satan and cast him into the bottomless pit. He had that key, that authority, not just the way to get in, but the authority over the bottomless pit and who was to go in and perhaps who was to get out and this type of thing, that use of the word key. So we want to think about the way the word, the Bible itself uses the word key. Now let's turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22, here's the only other place beside Revelation 
chapter uh, 3, verse 7, where it talks about Key of David. You can get an exhaustive concordance, and you'll find there are only two places in the Bible that mention the Key of David, Revelation 3, 7, and here in Isaiah 22. And uh, chapter 22, verse 15, he talks here about Shebna. He says, Go proceed to this steward. He was just a steward. He was not a king, by the way. We've checked this up. Shebna was never a king of Judah or Israel who was over the house. He was just over his master's house and some authority, not a king. And say, What have you here? Whom have you here uh, that you have hewn a sepulchre here as he who himself uh, hews himself a sepulchre on high? apparently trying to exalt himself. And remember, Jesus said constantly, He who exalts himself shall be abased, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So we've all got to try not to exalt ourselves. Certainly, if God gives us an office, we've got to defend that office, but we're not to go around trying to act like the great one and so on, as so many men do today, but in God's church you may not be called to a particular office, yet try to act like they're going to take over and do this and that, and God has not guided them that way or give them that talent at all or put them in it by clear circumstances. So anyway, here's a man trying to exalt himself. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man. He will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you'll die. And there your glorious chariot shall be the shame of your master's house. So he was not a king. He was a leading steward in his master's house. So I will drive you out of your office. It's a principle here. Through vanity, this man had to be put down. And from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him. He's going to put him in that office, you see. And with your robe and strengthen and with your belt, commit your responsibility to him. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, apparently a leading office in the city of Jerusalem, but not a king. And to the house of Judah, the key of the house of David. So he is talked about here having the key of the house of David. I will lay on his shoulder, notice this, he was to have certain authority in the city of Jerusalem. So he shall open and no one shut and shut and no one open. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now, some say this is kind of a dual prophecy referring later to Christ. I can't be sure of that. It's a little bit mysterious, but it just gives you an idea of the way the word key was used here as the other place. And it also, and back in uh, uh, this earlier verse uh, 22, he says, I will lay on his shoulder... You see, the key of David, of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. And so the key of David obviously has something to do with government. Here was a, an extra important mayor, perhaps, type individual, like a governor over the city. Sometimes they've used that term, you know, in biblical times. The governor over the city, and he had authority over that city. And sometimes cities were like city-states. He could decide who would get in or get out or exercise authority in the government in various ways. But notice now back in chapter 9, Isaiah 9, says he will lay this thing on his shoulder. And here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Certainly hearing referred to Jesus Christ. And the government has to do with government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. How could Christ be called Everlasting Father? I'll digress a moment. 
Well, God is called the Eternal. Christ is also called the Eternal. And frankly, there are several titles which apply to both of them. And Christ was like a father to ancient Israel. He was acting for God the Father, guiding them, blessing them. He's the one who brought them through the Red Sea. He's the one who brought them into the Promised Land. He's the one who did this and that, acting for the Father. He said, I and my Father are one. It's awfully hard for people to get that straight. Some of those titles are absolutely interchangeable between Christ and the Father. So that's the reason he's called Father here. Prince of Peace. Yes, Christ is the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David. It does have to do with the throne of David. Christ is coming back to that literal throne. And we feel... Not as a matter of uh, salvation, by the way. I don't think any of us feel that, but I think it's undoubtedly true. I would be willing to bet some money if I were a betting man. I don't bet that way, but you know what I mean, that the throne of David is over in Scotland. You know, it was first in Israel, then taken to Scotland or Ireland, then Scotland, then down to Westminster Abbey, where I saw it many times. And now the Scottish have got it back up there again, (laughs) and that's where it still is. But at any rate, for most of this last number of hundreds of years. It's been down at Westminster Abbey where some of you have seen it. And I saw it there a number of times because I lived in England would take people there and see the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny was probably the very throne over which, and even some of the British historians say that was the very throne, Jacob's pillar stone, over which the kings of Israel were crowned. Later, kings of Ireland, later kings of Scotland, and you know the story in Mr. Armstrong's booklet, and I think Mr. Gwen repeats part of that story in his booklet, taken down to Westminster Abbey, that very powerful, wonderful, magnificent church. When my wife and I were going to England a number of times the last few years, why, except for the last couple of times, I guess, we stayed in this uh, Italian chain hotel, which was not expensive, but it was we could go out to the hotel, turn right, turn left, I can't remember the streets, but just literally about two blocks down on the right was Westminster Abbey. So we could be there walking in about ten minutes. That was wonderful. So we would come over and fly over and get there at 8 or 7.30 the next morning. Groggy, we couldn't do anything that day. We lost sleep on the plane, so we had to keep moving. Otherwise, we'd, we'd lose our sleep pattern. So we'd go see Westminster Abbey, and I got to see it a number of times then and, of course, through the years. That's where that stone was for most of our modern time there in Westminster Abbey where Queen Elizabeth II was coronated, her father was coronated there, and so forth on that stone, the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it, established with judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. The zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. God has zeal. And we, brethren, need to have zeal for the things of God and zeal for God's work. And I hope we all can. But notice, Verse 6 again, to unto, unto us a child was born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. We just got through reading about this, this authority up here about Shebna, and uh, he, this authority was to be on the key of the house of the David, I will lay on his shoulder, Isaiah 22, verse 22. So these things do tie together. This authority that is given to Jesus Christ and that he shares much of it with his ministers, with his church, as we will see. We act for him. The church is his body, as you know. 
So we need to understand that. It has to do with the responsibility of God's government. And this certainly would include uh, for uh, Christ sitting on the literal throne of David when he comes back again, without question. That part is not unimportant. That's a wonderful part. But the main thing it applies to us is what is this part about government? And Mr. Armstrong realized in principle that that part was important, but he didn't necessarily particularly apply that there. He just acknowledged that it could apply that way. In his autobiography, I have a quote here that's been typed out. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote this about the governance in the Church of God's Seventh Day. And this is in his autobiography, if you want to write this down, pages 411 and 412. In Volume 1, the autobiography of Herbert W. Armstrong, ministers were to be employed and under orders from lay members. This is essentially the concept of what we call democracy, government from the bottom up. Those being governed dictate who shall be their rulers and how rulers shall rule them. The most perplexing subject in all the Bible to me was this matter of church government. I never did come to clear understanding of the Bible teaching on this subject until after Ambassador College was formed. And some of you older brethren will remember the main ones who wrote on that long before Mr. Armstrong did were Herman Hay and me. I wrote two or three entire articles on it, and Herman Hay wrote two or three articles on it, each covering it from a different point of view. And as Mr. Armstrong looked at our articles and approved them, we never sneaked in articles over his objection, you know. Uh, they, he, he came to realize and went even deeper into it, of course. But we were the ones who helped him understand this. Some of you think, how could you ever understand anything Mr. Armstrong didn't first teach you? Well, that's ridiculous. Each one of us ministers is to grow in grace and in knowledge. And again, Mr. Armstrong would say, well, of course, Rod, you're supposed to grow. I've always told you that. Please understand that, brethren, and you brethren around the world. It becomes idolatry if people say, Mr. Armstrong was like God, and whatever he said can't be changed, can't be altered, can't be modified. It's the Ten Commandments brought down from the top of Mount Sinai. That is not true. Having that attitude leads to idolatry. So please understand, we don't want Mr. Armstrong's writings regarded as the Bible. He did not want his writings regarded as the Bible. And I mean that. I told you that. Ask Mr. Parting about that. Those of us who knew him way back then, we know that and know that we know that before God. We're not honoring Mr. Armstrong by trying to make a God out of him. He never tried to make a God out of himself. That is a form of idolatry. So let's get straight. We're willing to grow, but this doesn't change any major. We're not about to change the Sabbath, the Holy Day. Oh, what are you going to change now? No. We're just dealing with the peripheral subject and adding something to what Mr. Armstrong had. He says later in a sermon we have that recorded, given on December 17, 1983, in the house of God in Pasadena, the government of God has been restored to the church, and the government of God has been placed in the church. You read this in First or Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 11. Christ is the head of the church, and under Christ in the administration of the government are apostle or apostles, plural, then evangelists, plural, then pastors, then are all are called elders, all ministers, all the way clear up to the lowest, up or down to the lowest. So then there are teachers and elders, both speaking elders and preaching elders, deacons and deaconesses, and the church is restored in that form of government. The Sardis church 
uh, didn't even have the right form of government. End of quotation. And then in The Mystery of the Ages, page 246, this is page 246 from The Mystery of the Ages, the church is organized under theocratic government, hierarchical form. Uh, so he wrote that and other things. Then I wrote, and I'll quote myself in this case, it may be helpful, in the uh, Living Church News, September, October 2002, before some of you came, Christ's government will also be hierarchical with those in authority appointed to their offices. There will be no voting and no politics, but rather a deep faith that Christ will install the right people in each office. That is why it is vitally important that we in God's church today learn to teach and practice God's form of government in the church, looking in faith to our living head, Jesus Christ, to guide and orchestrate the government in His church. For if we do not even have the faith now to trust Christ to lead His church, how can we expect to have any significant responsibility in His soon-coming government? In the quotation, and His soon-coming government is the kingdom of God. There are lots of fine people in various groups, but they try to vote and politic, but they're not showing faith in Christ and guiding His government. You see, they've lost that faith. That faith is gone from them, and they're going to have to learn some terrible lessons, frankly. And I would not want to be in their shoes in any case at all. It's a very serious thing, because they're departing from the government of God, the kingdom of God, and certainly the understanding of the key of David when they do that. So I hope you can understand and realize this is a very important topic. All right, let's go to Matthew 16, if you would. Matthew 16 and verse 16. Here Jesus Christ is speaking to Peter, and Peter has acknowledged, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, this is Matthew 16, 16. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say this to you, that you are Peter. Remember, we've explained again and again the Greek word. Look it up in a lexicon or interlinear. The Greek word is P-E-T-R-A, Petra. Very like the very place we may be taken to a place of safety. We don't say that is the place, but it's certainly a very possible place. Petra. It means a large stone, a stone cliff, a whole foundation stone. And here it is a whole valley carved out of a stone almost by the rains over a period of thousands of years perhaps and floods and so on. Petra, a massive stone foundation. Then he said to Peter, uh, I will build my church on this rock, this big stone. I will build my church. But he said, you are, uh, I, I'm, I'm saying this wrong, aren't I? I said, you are Peter. And here I'm using it wrong. I'll have to go back and you're all looking at funny. And I see why you're looking funny. The Greek word here for Peter is P-E-T-R-O-S. P-E-T-R-O-S. Petros, which means, of course, a small stone or rock or pebble. Whereas I will say to you, on this rock, meaning Petra, the big massive stone, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what are the gates of hell? Well, again, hell means the grave. And the Greek word here uh, for hell is uh, Hades. The, work, the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. And frankly, that works two ways. First of all, 
God never allowed His church to be utterly wiped out. Always there was a little church, some people somewhere, and also our ultimate goal, even if most of us die before Christ's coming, is what? Eternal life. The resurrection from the dead. So the gates of the grave will not prevail, even though some die, and most of us will die before Christ comes, perhaps. Well, I shouldn't say most. I'm looking at a lot of younger people, too. Some will die before Christ's coming, but uh, the grave will not prevail. And I will give you, he's talking to Peter, but as you'll see later, extends that to the other apostles. And the implication is, as you read through the Bible, that all faithful ministers have that to a degree. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the way to open the door into God's kingdom. You'll have the truth, as the scriptures certainly indicate, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, you can look this up in a number of commentaries, including Jewish sources, and the traditional Jewish way of understanding that, and Jesus was a Jew, and he knew that, was the top rabbis, scribes, and others were given the authority to make binding and loosing decisions based on the law. They were never, they didn't understand this to mean they could make up a different law, a different set of Ten Commandments, or a different set of statutes, but they were able to make binding decisions on how to apply the law and on disciplinary matters. How to apply the law and, you know, years ago, in fact, a number of times, Mr. Armstrong made uh, church rulings in the New Testament, chapter 1 Corinthians 11. Paul talks about the traditions of the church. And one of the traditions of the church was for a woman to wear long hair as a symbol of her subjection and taking the place in society that God wants. And he says it's a shame for a man to wear, you know, long hair but an honor for a woman to wear long hair. That's a tradition. Mr. Armstrong then built on that, and in the early 1950s, I was there when he did it, he began to read, and some of you have seen some of these exposés on television and heard it on the radio and printing press. The last several years they've come out, and they have found where the top, top uh, men in charge the presidents and vice presidents and scientists and these major cigarette companies all knew that smoking cigarettes regularly cut people's lives short and caused some of them, many thousands of them, to die horrible deaths. Death by lung cancer and throat cancer through cigarettes is a horrible way to die, often more painful than other forms of cancer. They knew that. But they wanted to make hundreds of billions of dollars, which they have done, and they kept right on. Mr. Armstrong saw that, and so he made it a church rule, that is, a binding and loosing decision, a tradition of the church that we do not smoke. He says, our brethren do not smoke, those who are baptized members of the church. He never made it a major issue to the extent he did murder or adultery, of course, but as a church tradition, a church practice, as you know, we don't smoke. We need to give people a chance to grow in grace and in knowledge on those minor points, and that's what they are, although getting drunk is not a minor point. That's serious, but, you know, smoking a couple of cigars for a new member or, you know, not drinking for a while or something like that, why, that's, uh, that's up to each one to kind of work out over time. But anyway, 
Peter was told here, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. God will back it up, backing up and guiding his ministry to make right decisions. And whatever you loose on earth or permit will be loosed in heaven. Then you turn over to chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And we're supposed to go to a brother right then. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't make a big public spectacle of it. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. He may hear you and be sorry if you really go straight to him and explain your hurt and why. But if he will not hear you, and he has really sinned against you, here's a man maybe flirting with my wife. Well, I could go get a shotgun, or I could go to him and talk to him. You see what I mean? God says it's good for me to talk to him first before I buy the new shotgun. All right, I'm kidding about the shotgun. Better be careful. My enemies will say, Rod Murder's going to shoot people with a shotgun. No, I'm kidding. All right. Anyway, but I might feel like it. But, <laughs> and in the past, in the past, I might have tried to beat them up because I was a Golden Gloves boxing champion. And I used to start out the freshman class each year telling about that. And the young men were very impressed. I tell them, you know, I thought, well, I'm up here. I have thick glasses and thin face. And they'll think you're just a, a four-eyed Bible teacher. So I'd tell them about running the mile and playing football and winning two different Golden Gloves boxing championships. And they were very impressed for the first 15 or 20 years. But I got up in my late 40s and 50s, and somehow I noticed they weren't as impressed. <laughs> they got, got too old. They thought, he's, no, he, he's not a danger anymore. Okay. Anyway, uh, so that's the way it goes. But he says, but he will not, if he will not hear you, take one or two more, take witnesses with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It won't just be between you and him like a personal argument. And if he refuses to hear them, you see them and you, of course, tell it to the church. Now, does each one who has had uh, some other brother in the church deeply offend him by saying bad things about him or flirting with his wife or or getting drunk and kicking him up or doing something, does each one ask if he can make the announcements the next Sabbath and tell it to the church? No, you don't find that in the Bible. You're to tell it. Every indication is in the Bible. Tell it to the leadership of the church. Tell it to your local minister, your brethren out in Australia or New Zealand, South Africa. Tell it to your minister and so on. And those of you here can tell uh, Mr. Ames or, or uh, one of us here in the leadership of the local church. So tell it to the church and let them help decide this in a right way. But if he refuses then uh, to hear the church, let him be you to you like a heathen and a tax collector. It doesn't say burn him at the stake like the Catholics did during the Inquisition, you see. You're not to do that. You're just to say, okay, you're free to go out in the Southern California sunshine, as they used to say. Or we'll say the North Carolina sunshine, as it is today. We're not going to kill you or hurt you, but you're gone. You've got to be, you're a bad boy. I know in the McNair family, my wife Margie and Carl McNair and Raymond McNair and Burke McNair all told me when they were really bad, the parents would uh, they'd sometimes spank them, but it depends on the situation. They'd spank them, but sometimes then they would they would literally send them away from the from the meal, especially if they were little kids and throwing a fit or making a big mess. And they would make them go out on the back porch, 
not when it was freezing, but in Arkansas it didn't get that cold that often. They would have to eat their food off a pie plate standing up in the back porch. In other words, you're wicked, little Johnny. You keep throwing things at your sister during the dinner, and you have to stand up in the back porch and, and finish your meal on a pie plate. And that was kind of humbling. You're bad. You're kind of cut off for a while. So, so that's what we're doing. We don't, we don't hate them, but they have to get out. They can't be with us if they're causing trouble and division, you see, and will not repent. Put them out, as other scriptures show, as I will read later. I surely, I say to you, whatever you bind, you see, in these binding decisions about how to apply a doctrine, a principle of a doctrine, we have to apply the principle of how to keep the Sabbath. We tell you how to keep the Passover. There are different ideas about that. Some say we're to keep it on the 15th, and others in the church, of course, and Mr. Armstrong, and we've all looked into it again and again and again. No, and know that we know Jesus Christ kept the Passover on the 14th. Look it up. The Jews were keeping their Passover the next night. He was keeping him the previous night what you ought to do. And that's what we do. So, you know, we a church has to make certain binding decisions. If everybody and his brother says, well, this is the way I want to keep the Passover. And this is the way I feel about wine. This is the way I feel about certain aspects of clean and unclean meats. Or the way I feel about, I think we ought to all be vegetarians. Because back there God said, the, I'm just giving you the, the, the plants of the, of, the, of the trees for food. So I'm going to interpret it that way. And the rest of you are sinners. If you eat meat, no. The ministry is to make those decisions, you see. And God makes that clear in the Bible. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. God guides the ministry in those decisions. And that's what, of course, we ought to uh, understand. And uh, again I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Notice, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, we often interpret that, or some of our brethren have said, well, that means wherever two or three people get together, it's a church, and we can stay home and just have a Bible study. Well, God tells you to come to church. He doesn't tell you to stay home if there are two of you there. If you're sick or have to, that's different. We understand that. But if this is applying primarily, if you see the context, to making a decision. If the ministers are making a binding decision on something, and they agree, two or three of them agree on something, then normally God would be guiding them in the judgment. Now you turn back to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And uh, you will see that here in Second Chronicles. Chapter 19, here it shows how Jehoshaphat was a very righteous king, as you know. Verse 4, Second Chronicles 19, verse 4, Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, went in and out of the people. And then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah and said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Eternal who is with you in the judgment. If God was with their carnal kings and judges back then, how much more would He be with His faithful ministers today? And let me say this, brethren, I've said this before, but you brethren around the world and any new people, and some of you especially who are in worldwide and are just new with us, I myself was shaken. I never turned aside. You know that. 
But I was worried and, you know, kind of shaken when all these things happened. I thought, where is Christ? Has He gone off and left us? And what will we do? Did Christ just leave us without a church? And some of you think, or some of my enemies have said, well, Rod Meredith always wanted to have his own church. That is a lie. I'll just tell you that. That is a lie before God. I never thought of starting another church. I had all kinds of opportunities when I was being sent away and kind of get rid, get me away from someone to get me over in England and out in uh, Hawaii during the reign of Lord Darth Vader and other things like that. I could have got very mad and wanted to start another church. I never did that. I never talked to my wife or hinted of such a thing. And Mark, Cheryl knows that and others who were with me during those times. I never thought of it. I'm a very open person. If I thought of it, it would have come out of my mouth, as Cheryl knows, and never crossed my mind to start another church. And when these things start happening, I begin to realize I may have to do something, and I begin to reread Mr. Armstrong's autobiography for the second or third time, or fourth, <laughs> and I begin to realize Mr. Armstrong had to leave the Oregon Conference of the Church of God when they would not grow and not let him teach the full truth, so he went over to Duggar and the Salem, West Virginia Church of God for a while, read it in his own autobiography, and then when they stopped him from preaching the Israel truth and some other things, and then other things happened too, then he broke away from them and started what we now call the Worldwide Church of God. I thought he did it twice. And I thought, what will I do? What will I do? So I began to fast twice a month. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not righteous. The Pharisees sometimes fasted twice a week. I didn't do that. I'd go starve to death. But I did fast. I don't mean grape juice or water. I mean completely twice a month. And beseech God, please, Father, make it clear what I should do. And finally, about five things happened in a row. One, one right after the other. I've told somebody, you better not take the sermon for it. Right in a row. And the fifth thing was that they were going to forcibly retire me and I had to say, yes, I'll take your money, I'll take the lease car for very little, and take the retirement, including a health plan, and then I'll retire and not do anything. I thought, if I do that, I'm turning my back on God, I'm turning my back on Christ, I'm turning my back on everything Mr. Armstrong taught me. I was given a shove. Actually, Christ kicked me and gave me a shove, so to speak, because I didn't do it when the other things happened. Now I had to make a decision. So I did make the decision to start the global church of God. Not because I was trying to start another church, but I tried to get two or three other leading evangelists to come. I remember specifically talking at length with Mr. Raymond Menere several times and Dr. Hay several times, especially. And they were not ready to come. And Dr. Hay never did come. And that gave me great sorrow because I loved him, still do. But he's now dead. I had to step out alone. And Don Davis, who's a faithful man, but was not even an elder. He was just a deacon. So it was my wife and me and Don Davis, in a sense, that had to start the global church of God. And that's what we did. And we had 19 people at first, just 19 people in my living room around the dining table. And then some spilled out into the living room. We had a you know, dining room, and then around here was the living room, and some were sitting on couches, or some kids even were sitting on the floor, but we had that for our first meeting. And then the next Sabbath, January the 2nd, 1993, we just had our 14th anniversary a couple of weeks ago, we uh, had official service, announced it ahead of time, and we had 42 people 
in the condominium recreation room that Don Davis managed off the freeway between Pasadena and Los Angeles, 42. That very autumn, we had 1,500 at the feast. People were hungry for someone to stand up. I cannot live with myself if I did not do something. I began to realize that. I wasn't trying to do something. I had to and was given a shove. So that's why we're here. But now we have all kinds of Tom, Dicks, and Harrys running around. And one guy who's kind of a construction guy up there in the Midwest starts his own church on the Internet and is able to even confuse some people way off in Perth, Australia. It kind of blew my mind. I thought, who is this guy? He's not a leader. I don't think he ever had any college. Never had one day of ambassador college. Was never a writer, preacher, teacher, leader. He just decides, I want to be important and I'll go do this. And then other people decide, I want to be important and I'll do this. Is that God's way? I've had all kinds of reasons to do that before. I didn't do that. I'm not perfect. I make hundreds of mistakes. But that's not the way to go. You better have an awfully good reason before you rush off and start another church. That's rebelling against the government of God. If there is a viable church of God, get it straight, which is preaching the full truth, not perfectly, but the full truth, and it's doing the work of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God based on God's law and the end time prophecies in the Ezekiel witness. Again, not perfectly, but really doing it with their heart and also has the right form of government. Those three things, you have no excuse to leave. But if I would start, or if even Mr. Dr. Winnale and Mr. Ames and others would join with me and start, some other church in the sense we would take you, oh, well, now we're going to do away with the Sabbath. Well, now we're going to do away with the Holy Days. Then you ought to do what I do. I'll just tell you that in advance. Go where the truth is if we go aside on some major thing. But if there's some minor thing, like some little more explanation about foods or about the key of David or about some prophetic thing, even if we're wrong, don't go off. Just come and say, well, I disagree and can you explain it? You see, we're not suddenly some false ministers because some minor mistake is made. Christ overall will guide the church. So after Global got going and grew several years, then I looked back and I realized, wait a minute, Christ did not forsake His church. (laughs) In spite of all my weaknesses, and I'm filled with them, He used me to carry on. And people did not have to wait for 17 years like Joseph did, who was sold into slavery, and had to wait for, I think it was 17 years. And David was running from Saul and from his enemies for about 10 years. They could have waited a few months. And they would have heard us on KIEV Glendale in the L.A. area, the old radio station Mr. Armstrong used, and over in the station in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then later we got on WHO Des Moines, a big 50,000-watt clear channel station Mr. Armstrong used to use, and ran a magazine. If they'd been asking and looking around, they would have found us, as many of you did do during those years. And they would have come, you see. God did not leave His church alone. He was still in charge. So let's have faith in that. Christ is the living head of the church. He will guide His ministers overall. He tells us back in Colossians, if you would turn there with me briefly, Colossians chapter 2, he's talking about uh, Christ being the head of the church and and how the, the Colossians were dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, verse 13 And He's made alive together, forgiving you all trespasses. Verse 14, Colossians 2.14, Having wiped out the note of guilt, 
the note of guilt, as it may be translated, or handwriting of requirements, but it's really a note of guilt that was against us, you see, the record of our sins, and he's taken it out of the way, nailed it to his cross. He nailed our sins to his cross. He didn't nail God's law to his cross, but our, the record of our sins. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the minute. Therefore, let no one judge you, you see, in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, an annual festival. Should you keep it on the 14th or the 15th? Or should you start it just before or after sunset? The church is responsible to guide those things. Otherwise, you have everybody, every man and his brother coming along. Here's the way I look at it. Here's the way I look at it. How do you have order in the church? God is not the author of confusion. Don't let any man judge you in eating or drinking, as it is, on regarding a holy day, which were a shadow of things to come, the holy days. Don't let any man judge you, but... The body, the Greek word here is used substance and whatever the king, the old King James has, what, what word I've forgotten, the substance, or but the literals that is in the margin, look it up in the Greek, it's soma, S-O-M-A. It means the body of Christ. And that exact same word, the body of Christ, is used in this exact same book back here in chapter 1, verse 18. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Same word. Who makes the decisions? The body of Christ. You see, once you prove where the church is, then you have to have a little bit of confidence that Christ will guide His church. The body of Christ to decide which is the best day for Passover, how's the order of services, and, you know, things like that. Whether we should eat or not eat or... Is it all right to drink wine or not or whatever? So you have to have confidence in Christ. It's not just in men, it's in Christ's leadership. Is Christ alive? Yes, I proclaim Christ is alive. He was resurrected. He is the living, active head of His church, and He is to guide things. And the key of David, the authority of government through Christ, comes right into the church and in His ministry, as I think you can see from these references. So that is what this is talking about. So the living church of God does have the key of David. We, perhaps more than any other church, emphasize the identity of Israel and preaching the Ezekiel warning to the whole world. Some of the other churches sort of vaguely identify it, but don't make a big deal. One of the bigger ones had no no booklet on it for years. Finally came up with kind of a half-baked booklet, but not near as strong as ours. And don't mention it very much, because some of their ministers aren't even sure of it. We're all sure of it. It's a big deal, yes. Our national identity and what's about to happen to us in the greatest tribulation in human history. We've got to know who we are to warn Israel, the house of Israel. So we do have that part. And that's very important. Secondly, we understand and practice the correct form of church government, as Mr. Armstrong taught and practiced overall. In fact, we've tried to improve it. We don't have quite the authoritarian approach that even he had or a number of ministers under him had, and you older members know that. We've tried to be a little bit more kind and patient and so forth, and he would want us to. We're to grow in grace and in knowledge. Anyway... So we practice and teach the correct form of church government. Yes, we understand the key of David. Back in Luke chapter 11, if you would turn there. Luke, if you would, brethren, chapter 11 
Uh, and notice here, verse 52, Jesus Christ is speaking, and He said here, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. This was the Jewish scribes, of course, and lawyers, their leading men. You have the truth, you see, they had it in a sense, they had the Bible, they had certain knowledge of what was true, but they messed it up, they twisted it in an evil way. You've taken away the key. See, the key is used for authority, it's used for knowledge, it's used for opening a door sometimes, the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And certainly some of the false ministers, even in the extended Church of God community, are hindering those who would come to the truth because they get them in their church and then they start proclaiming they're an apostle or they're a prophet or that everybody else is wicked or you can't even eat with their own children, blah, 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 all this crazy stuff, you see. And people, new people say, what is this? And after a few weeks, I imagine a lot of people are dropping away. So that will hurt us in the end. It will hurt us. We need to pray that God will help solve that situation in His time. I don't hate those guys at all, at all. A lot of them are friendly guys. They're just mixed up, but they're hurting people terribly, having certain truth that I help teach them, and Mr. Armstrong and Dr. Hay and others help teach them. Then they go out, you know, and and, uh, cause confusion by this stuff they come up with. They have the key of knowledge, but they hinder those who would come into the kingdom of God. So we want to understand... In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, I use this, of course, many times, but we do need to understand how to apply these things. What is this thing about right government, how important it is? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? How dare you go down the street to some worldly court against your own brother in the church? What's going on? Can't you have confidence that Jesus Christ is alive and that Jesus Christ will guide? You say, well, I've seen the mistakes made. Brethren, do you read the newspapers? Do you see the mistakes that these worldly judges make where they will literally put you in jail sometimes if you try to uh, not hire some homosexual or you will do something like that here in Britain or elsewhere? You talk about mistakes. Yes, we make mistakes, but they don't even begin to start to commence to approach the mistakes by these worldly judges. So you need to have confidence that Christ will guide the church. And if there is a mistake, take it to the next level if you need to, and Christ will straighten it out in due time. He will. He's in charge. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The key of David has to do with government The key of David has to do with authority. Why are you and me called right here? We're called to prepare now to judge the world. That's why it's so important that we learn right government here and now. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that the saints or that we shall judge angels? How much more things pertain to this life? As I've said, things about should you smoke cigarettes or or certain kinds of television bad or certain kinds of music or certain kinds of whatever. And if we make a church decision on it, you ought to follow that, knowing that Christ has undoubtedly guided that decision. And if you think it's a wrong decision, come and talk to us. And we will not kick you out. You all know that. If you've been around a while, we'll, we'll reason with you. And I'll get out my golden glove and, you know, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
So we'll, well, we'll talk to you and we will reason with you and we do that anytime anyone misunderstands. Chapter 5, now I'm, I'm sorry, yes, 1 Corinthians 5, just before this section, and, uh, and, and, uh, he inter- introduces here this story of this fornicator and how church government had to be used. I just want to use that as an example. What did they do? Well, here is this, it says, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Not his mother, but apparently his stepmother, you see. And you're puffed up. Some churches get all puffed up and they have all kinds of sin right in their midst. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit, my mind, my attitude is there with you, have already judged as though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name, again, this word name usually means authority, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, acting for him, using the key of David, that government principle that has been given to Christ and to his servants, in the name of Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, my decision, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, God may strike that person with a terrible physical problem to humble them, to bring them down, and hopefully they will yet repent before the they die or the tribulation comes or whatever. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If we let this kind of thing spread, sin or rebellion against the church, against the authority or whatever, it hurts the whole church. A little leaven begins to spread. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you're truly unleavened. They were. This was during the days of unleavened bread, I feel, when he wrote this. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us Therefore, let us keep the feast. So they're to keep the feast of unleavened bread coming right after the Passover, which they just observed. We can see that reading chapter 11. Not with the old leaven. No, you're to not use leaven. It's just a lesson, but you shouldn't have leaven. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. That's the main thing. Get rid of sin. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Act on sin. Use church government. In a right way, of course, and in love and in balance and in wisdom. That's the whole thing. And that's what we're trying to do in uh, the living church of God. So our very calling is to be kings and priests. Remember back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26. We've given you that so many times. But he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. He was to have a kingdom. We are also having that responsibility. That's why we're here. That's why we're called now. That's what we're being trained to do, to be kings and priests. Chapter 5, verse 9, the Song of the Saints. You're worthy to take a scroll... The scroll, open its seals, for you, Christ, were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, as I preached about last time. How precious that blood is, the blood of Jesus Christ, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign. We've got to rule, and so we're being taught how to do that 
through church government here and now. And I hope we can all understand. Turn back to Second Samuel, brethren. Turn back to Second Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to hurry so I don't run too far over here. Second Samuel chapter 23. He says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Eternal spoke by me. This is King David. The last words of David, it says in verse 1. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So let's think deeply about that, each of us. We've got to do it the right way. But that doesn't mean to let sin run rampant. That doesn't mean to let division start. It just fester and fester. We can't do that either to protect God's people. So we've got to protect the sinner, but we've also got to protect the church, of course, and uh, and exercise church government in the right way. Turn back to Proverbs, if you would, with me now. Proverbs uh, chapter 17 I want to give you a few principles here in closing on church government and leadership and rule. Proverbs 17, verse 10. And I would advise you to read the whole book of Proverbs again and again. I've probably read the whole book through 25 or 30 times in the last few years. I know I need that wisdom as your human leader under Christ. I keep reading it and reading it and reading it. Verse 10. Reproof is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said a number of times, and I have experienced this, I know this to the depths of my being, one of the most profound signs of a deeply converted person is his or her ability to take correction. Not just listen to it, but to take it and respond properly. Will you really take correction Or do you say, well, here's the way I look at it. Or you didn't give the correction. You didn't have a perfect smile on your face when you gave it. So I'm going to get offended. You know, that's a deep sign. A deep sign of conversion. Reproof is more effective for a wise man. Very important thing. And we're not able to rule unless we learn how to be ruled, of course. Verse 15. Verse 15. He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the ever-living one. We've got to be fair. We must not justify the wicked, but we'd better not condemn the just. Proverbs 18, verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. One minister who left us tend to be kind of a loner and never wanted to take correction and would just... Uh, He would talk down to the ministers, but they couldn't call him, and he wouldn't listen to reason very often. He isolates himself. You see, a man who does that will not make balanced decisions. He just thinks, I've got my idea, and I've got my program, and that's it. And that, of course, makes him unable to listen to counsel and to get good advice. Verse 5, it is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Again, you've got to be fair. Deal strongly with even the righteous if they sin, and also with the wicked. And now verse 13. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Don't jump to conclusions. Some people just jump to conclusions. They don't like someone, so they decide they're bad almost before they know what's happened. Don't do that.
get all the facts. All the facts. Pray about it fervently. Then get multitude of counsel and then think it through again and then try with God's help and prayer to make the right decision. That's very important. Otherwise, you're not fit to be a king or a priest in God's kingdom. And that you just got to realize that. Turn to uh, chapter uh, 19 now, chapter 19 and verse 20. Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Brethren, learn to listen to counsel. And counsel doesn't mean just your best friend who already thinks like you do, as I've explained. <laughs> Get a multitude of counsel, leading men or women who have wisdom, and listen to their counsel, of course. That's a constant thing that God brings up again and again. So he says in verse 29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings to the back of fools. Yes, we sometimes have to judge the scoffers and those who would just sound off and not listen to advice or correction at all. Notice verse uh, chapter uh, 20 now in verse 18. Every purpose is established by counsel, by wise counsel wage war. All the way through the book of Proverbs, he keeps coming back four or five times. You better get counsel, listen to counsel, get a lot of advice, think about it, be slow, be careful, get all the facts. If you're going to be a ruler in tomorrow's world, please try to inculcate all those things in your mind and heart, brethren, and in your life. That's very, very important. And now, verse 26 here, if you would, and 28. A wise king sifts out the wicked. You're going to be a king. Yes, you have to deal with people that are causing trouble or causing division or exalting themselves in the wrong way. A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. Mercy and truth... This is the key thing. Mercy and truth preserve the king. And by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. Many other Proverbs, I better not read the rest I have here, but just giving you flavor. Learn to read those things and say, I'm going to be a king in a few years. I want to be. I've got to apply these principles now to learn right judgment so I can be the right kind of a king and priest and teacher in tomorrow's world. Turn again to our first scripture, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I've set before you this era. And brethren, even though we are not in the Philadelphia era, we have the same spirit, as you know, because some of us, like Mr. Debar Pardin and I and Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnea, worked with Mr. Armstrong for decades, helping him build the work. And Mr. Pardin worked with him a long time. And I did, going way back in the 1950s. And we're personal friends of Mr. Armstrong. We know how he thought it did. We helped him build the work. We say, help, you do it. No, we're not taking his credit. He did it. But we helped him. He did have help. And so we know what he did. And so we've got to carry on that way. See, I've set before you an open door. We've got to go through those doors. And because we're trying to do that, God has let us have more power, more impact on the world, perhaps than any other group at this time of a like nature. And no one can shut it. They try. 
Inspiration Network kicked us off and it seemed like just a week or ten days later the Word Network opened up as Mr. Pyle explained. That's inspiring. God just keeps going. It's Christ doing it, not us. For you have a little strength and have kept my Word. We've got to keep God's Word. We cannot water it down and have not denied my name. He says then later in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. He's going to come quickly on us in this era. Hold fast that you have, that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. Brethren, you can be pillars if you take these things to heart. This means you to understand right government, to understand the key of David, and to use it the right way. You'll become a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem. And I will write on him my new name. God has a magnificent reward ahead for those who understand and follow these things. So we need to really appreciate that. And we must rightly exercise as a church and individually the key of David and this whole right way of government. And we are really called today... We are really called to be kings and rulers in a few years. Let's get ready.